Well, as Pastor Eric indicated, I'm Michael Madany, one of the elders here at New Hope Presbyterian Church. And following Reuben's example last week, I'll give you a little bit of full disclosure about this sermon. Don't be shocked, but this is not the first time I preached it. It was originally given two months ago at a small Baptist church in a tiny hamlet in the middle of Wheaton canola fields east of Edmonton and my birthland of Canada. But I add that this is not a recycled sermon, this has only been repurposed. So we're going to look at two scriptures today. The first is Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. This is the famous Great Commission of Jesus Christ to his disciples. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Then we're going to move further along in the New Testament to St. Paul's epistle to the Colossians. We're going to look at Colossians 3, verses 1 to 15. Colossians 3, 1 to 15. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, that what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, you have been called in one body. And be thankful. Let's pray. Triune God, we thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you so much for giving us your spirit. And today, as I attempt to bring a message from your word, may your spirit be in our hearts and minds. May your spirit be leading me as I speak. May all of us here be guided by your spirit to apply what we hear from your holy word. And above all, Lord, help us to be ready to always give a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ to give it in a loving and respectful way. We ask this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Now, it's not so surprising to hear a missionary speak about the Great Commission. 
And of course, many of you heard Pastor Eric preach on the Great Commission, these verses from Matthew, just two months ago. But as he and I were discussing me preaching today, he assured me that this topic, the Great Commission, can handle more than one sermon per year. So I'm thankful for that. And this morning, our focus will be twofold. The what? What is the content of the Great Commission? What exactly was Jesus Christ telling the disciples to do? And the who? For whom is the Great Commission intended? We don't have enough time to consider many details on how the Great Commission is to be completed. You all want to leave before noon, eh? However, I will be concluding my sermon with encouragement that all of us can be obediently involved with the Great Commission that our Lord Jesus Christ has given us. Now, shortly before he ascended to heaven, Jesus Christ gathered his disciples for some final instructions. This had come after three years of his earthly ministry of teaching and miracles. And then remember, there was that momentous week in the earthly ministry of the Messiah, the triumphal entry, the betrayal, trial, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And then after that, 40 days of additional teachings for the disciples. Jesus put special focus at that time on helping his disciples understand how his earthly work was the culmination of all of the Old Testament. For example, think of the lesson he gave those two disciples walking down the Emmaus Road. Until the day of his ascension, Jesus continued to remind his disciples that he was not going to restore the earthly kingdom of Israel, the days like as in the days of King David or King Solomon. At that point, all his followers were Jewish with a strong sense of being God's chosen people based on their physical descents from the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was a deep nostalgia they had, particularly under Roman occupation, but a deep nostalgia for those glorious golden age of David, King David and King Solomon. So our Lord addressed those to who he had chosen and he gave them their job description. Jesus Christ's final instructions took place prior to two key events in redemption history. Just after this job description, he was about to ascend into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. Ten days later, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would descend upon the assembled disciples in Jerusalem. So Jesus' final command, what we're looking at today, has been called the Great Commission. And these instructions are recorded elsewhere in the New Testament. They're at the conclusion of Mark and Luke, the beginning of Acts, but they're most clearly spelled out here in Matthew 28. Our Lord Jesus wanted his disciples to become messengers. They were to communicate the life-changing good news about his redemptive work. Jesus Christ told his followers to go, to make disciples of all nations, and to baptize these new disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to teach these new disciples to observe and obey all of Christ's teachings. Now, just hearing someone make a one-time decision for Christ was not to be these disciples' goals. Goal. Rather, it was a long-term process of incorporating the new disciples into the community of believers, the church, the body of Christ. The Messiah's followers would be patiently teaching the new disciples the good news. They needed to explain what new life in Christ meant for all aspects of daily life. The apostles had to trust in the convicting and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit accompanying the proclamation of Scripture and the testimony of the words and deeds of the Messiah. And there was also a multiplication principle going on here. 
the new disciples would in turn witness to others. And this would generate an ever-expanding movement of followers of Jesus Christ. Well, what would the foundation be of this outward movement to make disciples of all nations? This foundation is based on Christ's kingship. Jesus told his disciples that all authority on heaven and on earth had been given to him. When our Lord tells the disciples where to go, to whom to proclaim the good news, he uses a small word with a big implication, all. His original disciples were to make disciples of all nations. As Luke records these instructions in Acts 1, Jesus Christ said, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's totally comprehensive. No people or nation is left out. The wording of the Great Commission echoes the all nations phrase we see throughout Psalms and many of the writings of the prophets. And of course, it was the necessity of waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Jesus did not mention that outpouring explicitly here in Matthew, as, as he did in Mark and Luke, but the final verse stressed that he would be present with his disciples. How would he be present? His presence would take place by the fulfillment of their promise that the Holy Spirit would be given to all believers. Now let's fast forward nearly 30 years and see an example of the Apostle Paul's work as he was being obedient to the Great Commission. Now, Paul proclaimed a gospel of grace, but not of cheap grace. As Paul wrote in Titus, particularly verse, or chapter 3, verses 4 to 8, Jesus saved those who trusted in him not by their works, but in order that they would do good works. Their response to salvation was to live a life of service to our Savior based on love and gratitude. All aspects of a disciple's life are under the lordship of Jesus. Now, as we look at the church in Colossae, let us consider how our passage addresses these questions. What did these disciple, new disciples need to do? How did these teachings change individual lives and society, both internally and externally? Now, Colossae was a city not far from Ephesus in the province of Asia Minor. Nowadays, this is part of southwest Turkey. Now, Paul had not actually founded the church in Colossae. It's not even mentioned in the book of Acts. Rather, this church was started by someone called Epaphras. Epaphras had encountered Paul's teaching and preaching in the strategic city of Ephesus, where Paul had spent more than two years proclaiming the gospel. Epaphras had become a disciple of Christ there during Paul's years of ministry. He returned to his hometown a changed man, and he brought the gospel witness to his family and his neighbors. And Epaphras stayed in contact with Paul after he had planted a church in Colossae. At some point, Paul was inspired to write this letter to the Colossian church with both doctrinal and practical instruction. Overall, especially beginning in Colossians 1 and 2, Paul stresses the divine nature and the authority of Jesus Christ, particularly in those chapters. But we're going to focus on the first half of chapter 3. Like most of Paul's epistles, he starts with theological foundations, then he moves on to practical applications. We're going to pay special attention to changed attitudes, changed thoughts, words, and actions. Also, that will help us understand the Great Commission with its implications for us today. However, there's a lot more in these 15 verses that time does not allow us to cover. It's a very rich chapter, so I'm just really going to be skimming here and there with the Great Commission as our focus point. Jesus is Lord. That truth changes everything for a disciple. 
Paul begins by reminding the Colossian church, all authority has been given to Jesus Christ. He is at the right hand of God the Father. You have new life in Jesus Christ. Therefore, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on things above, not things that are on earth. So our motivations, our desires, our thoughts will be aligned with something very different than those of non-believers. Paul uses powerful language regarding how the Colossians should live. He presents two lists of sins that disciples of Christ need to struggle against. Verse 5 lists sins relating to sex and money. These are common themes in the Bible. And then in verse 8, in the first part of 9, he lists sins that affect relationships, that prevent people from living together in harmony. The second part of verse 9 and on to 10, Paul points out an essential truth about the saving work of Christ. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Those who trust in the gospel message and become disciples of Jesus Christ are renewed. This renewal changes disciples in such a way that they more clearly reflect the image of God. Paul uses the picture of putting on clothing, like the garments of righteousness mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. However, the Apostle Paul doesn't just leave this tremendous truth at the individual level or even at the level of the congregation in Colossae. Rather, in verse 11, Paul presents a radical concept that was in total conflict with the culture of the Colossians and every other ethnic group within the Roman Empire. Let's read 11 again. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What Paul is saying here is allegiance to Jesus Christ brings unity and diversity. There's no distinctions of education, class, ethnicity, nationality. Think back to Jesus Christ's words in the Great Commission. Make disciple of all nations. Now let's unpack those last two words, beginning with the word nations. The Greek word here is ethnos, and it refers to people sharing a common language and culture. It's not merely one of the 195 nation states that make up the United Nations today. It's much broader than that. In fact, the best definition we get of nations comes from Revelation 7-9. It says, nations are tribes, peoples, languages. Those are just different ways of saying the same thing. And this is what is termed often by mission researchers today as people groups. I did a little bit of research online this week, and the number of people groups in the world today is huge. It could be more than 15,000. And they're organized within about 270 people clusters, groups of people with similar languages and culture. So that's nations. Now let's look at the word all. All nations means all nations. There's no exceptions in the fine print. It's unlike the warranty you get from a car dealer, and apologies to all the car dealers here, or exceptions in your insurance policy. Now, after moving back to the USA, following 22 years of living in East Africa, I had no experience with car warranties. And it seemed back in 2004, I bought a used car, which is, you'd expect for a missionary coming back, and nothing too much wrong with it, but it seemed every time there was something wrong with this used car, and I took it to the dealer with a smile on my face, 
there was some exception in the warranty about that particular problem. That's not what we're talking about here. In Paul's day, there was no shortage of religious, cultural, ethnic, racial, social prejudice within the Roman Empire. Think of the Roman citizens themselves. They had legal rights that no one else had. In fact, Paul had the good fortune to be born in Tarsus, a special city, so he benefited from having Roman citizenship because of where he was born. And then think of the Greeks. They considered themselves more cultured and civilized than anyone else. They had a rich tradition of philosophy, literature, science, athletics, art. And the Jews looked down on everyone else. They looked down on all the Gentiles as unclean, uncircumcised pagans, and they avoided getting close to them, definitely not eating with them. Now, last Saturday, about 40 of us here uh, heard uh, Dr. Mike Kuhn talk about this when he was going over the story of Peter visiting Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And in both Roman, Greek, and Jewish society, women were considered greatly inferior to men. Not only that, slavery was widespread in the ancient world. So Colossians 3.11, it echoes Paul's words of unity in Galatians 3.28, but it has a much more exhaustive listing of social and cultural categories. Beyond Jew, Greek, male, female, slave-free, there's two more categories, barbarian and Scythian. Now, barbarians were people who couldn't speak Greek. And Greek was the international language of the Eastern Mediterranean world. Everybody down in Egypt, Palestine, Syria, what is now Turkey, Greece, what's now Libya, they all spoke Greek, unless they were barbarians, which meant they were really rural people. Uh, we would call them today hicks or other such, uh, people who lived off in the hills or far away from town. Those were the barbarians. But the Scythians were another category altogether. They were wild nomads living north of the Black Sea in what's today the Ukraine, or southern Russia. They were the ultimate uncivilized savages. The Scythians had never been conquered by anyone. They were never part of the Persian Empire or the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. So for Paul to expand his list to include barbarians and Scythians showed there were absolutely no exceptions to his all-nations category, or to the all-nations category our Lord used in the Great Commission. No fine print exclusions. For Colossian Christians who all spoke Greek, Paul's words about being one in Christ were truly radical. I'm not sure that there were any actual barbarians or Scythians in their congregation there in Colossae. Given the geographic location of that city, it's not very likely. However, Paul used these words, these names, to make them understand that all nations really meant all nations. Now, there was an early church father by the name of Justin Martyr. He lived in Palestine less than a century after the New Testament was finished, around 150 A.D. And he wrote this. Now, listen carefully to what he says. We, who once despised and destroyed each other, and who refused to hold anything in common with people who are not of the same tribe due to their differing customs, now live in common with them. He was a great apologist, and he was using this argument to point out to the pagan Romans that the gospel really changed people for the better. 1,900 years later, as we review church history, we realize achieving this harmony within ethnic diversity remains an ongoing challenge for the church. We Christians have often been disobedient to Christ's clear command. 
But when we do show unity across cultural differences, what a beautiful thing that is to testify to the world about the difference Christ makes in our hearts and our minds. Now, what's the point of removing ethnic and social distinctions? It's not for political or ideological motives. It's not so that we can get warm fuzzies, feel good, hold hands, and sing kumbaya. Let's consider the writings of two famous preachers, one from the past and one still alive. Charles Spurgeon wrote about this verse 11 of Colossians 3 about 150 years ago. In the new life, there's no distinction of race and nationality. We are born into one family, we become members of Christ's body, and this is the one thing we have to keep up. Separation from all the world, no separations in the church, no disunion, nothing that would cause it, for we are one in Christ, and Christ is all. And then to a contemporary pastor, I'll be paraphrasing John Piper here. In creating new people in his image, by his own power, God was obliterating distinctions in which we could boast. Distinctions that separated us and made us suspicious and distrustful and jealous and puffed up. God's aim in creating new people was that the Colossians would stop boasting in their distinctives that separated them and boast in Christ who united them. Look back at verse 10. Paul tells us we have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The end of verse 11 emphasizes the cornerstone of our new identity, but Christ is all and in all. This should so totally change our perspective on other people, whether in our own neighborhood or in the most remote parts of the world. Our allegiance to Christ is most important. That has the highest priority. To quote commentator Alistair Wilson, to be in Christ is the most fundamental identity a person can have. This allows us to be in harmonious relationships with fellow believers with very different ethnic and national backgrounds, remembering that we're one in Christ. Now, Paul goes on in this chapter to stress a life dominated by love. After giving a radical lesson on Christian unity, cutting across these social, economic, ethnic barriers, he switches gears, gives a list of virtues in verses 12 to 14, and these virtues culminate in love. This list is reminiscent of the fruit of the Spirit list we have in Galatians 5. And that top priority on love also resonates or relates to his famous chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, Above all, put, love, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love makes possible harmonious relationships with those who are very different. Love fuels empathy for those who are different from us. These were remarkable thoughts for the Colossian Christians to consider. Being disciples of the Messiah changed their attitudes, their words, their behavior. Being disciples of Jesus gave them an entirely different view about the rest of humanity. Okay, but how are Paul's teachings to the disciples in Colossae applicable to us 2,000 years later as disciples of Jesus Christ? Consider how Paul's obedience to the Great Commission led him to disciple Epaphras while he proclaimed the gospel in Ephesus. Epaphras had become a disciple of Jesus Christ that led Epaphras in turn back to his hometown in Colossae. And then Paul gave assistance to that young church that Epaphras founded by writing them a letter telling fellow believers he had never met about, about 
the depths of the gospel. After 2,000 years, this letter provides us with some challenging teaching. How do we live out this reality? As part of the church, our allegiance to Jesus Christ is our top priority above any other sort of allegiance. Now, Uchi and I have worked among the Somali people for over 40 years. And after more than three decades of civil war, Somali refugees have scattered all over the world. Many of you have Somalis living in your neighborhood. Seattle has America's third largest Somali community. Now, in a way, the Somalis bear some resemblance to the Scythians in the days of Paul and Epaphras. They have an image problem. News reports about Somalia or Somalis tend to feature either Somali pirates, especially 10 years ago, or the ongoing terrorist activities of the Al-Shabaab jihadists. But God has given us a love for the Somali people, and for us, they're not defined by films like Black Hawk Down 30 years ago or Captain Phillips 10 years ago. We can testify that we have seen the lives of many Somalis transformed by the power of the gospel. Now, earlier this year, before and after I went to Ethiopia, I briefly shared with you the story of an ex-pirate, Omar, a Somali pirate who put his faith in Christ after years of reading the Bible in a Belgian prison. He found our New Life website, began writing us emails, and then Omar was being discipled by a Dutch pastor, and he was last summer baptized into the International Protestant Church of Antwerp before he was deported back to Somalia in December. In the three months that Omar lived with his family in Mokdishu, in the capital city, they were impressed by the dramatic change in his life. No more making money with his AK-47. No more taking drugs or chasing women. He was even helping with the household chores. How many times have you seen a pirate wash dishes? His father and his brothers protected him. And this is a really remarkable situation for a Muslim family in Somalia to protect a Christian member. A month ago, Omar completed a six-month YWAM intensive discipleship course in Uganda run by Ugandan Christians. His hope now, his dream, is to become a taxi driver there in Uganda, in Kampala. And as his pastor back in Belgium says, Pastor Jan wrote me an email last week. He said, no doubt he'll witness to Christ to every passenger he has in his taxi. But even for individuals, even for Somalis who are not involved in activities as violent or antisocial as being a pirate, we have heard and read the testimonies of many who have trusted Christ after encountering the gospel on the New Life website or Facebook or YouTube pages. We've seen lives of fear and doubt that have changed to lives of joy and peace because of trusting in the promises of Jesus Christ. You see, in Islam, you have, no matter how obedient you try to be to God, there's absolutely no assurance of your eternal destiny. And hell is described in vivid detail in the Quran. God is all-powerful and he's capricious or random in who he chooses to go to heaven and who he chooses to go to hell. So attitudes of pride and hatred have been transformed into attitudes of humility and love. Imagine being in a country, a land, where there's been some kind of civil war for 45 years. There's no shortage of pride and hatred. But being in Christ and filled with his Holy Spirit provides the remedy for that hostility. However, we should not just look outwards at the testimony of our new Somali brothers and sisters in Christ 
we should also examine our own hearts and minds. If we set our minds on that which is above, how does that affect how we view our neighbors and our neighborhood? Especially those who are different from us by ethnicity, remembering that they too are created in God's image. How can we be involved in fulfilling the Great Commission? Here's a few ideas that have come up. One is prayer. Prayer is so important. Pray for missionaries. Pray for the churches that they're founding. Pray for religious freedom in Muslim lands. Pray for protection of churches there and for for new Christians. But then there's also witness in our own community here. We don't have any Scythians around here in Kent or Renton. Haven't run into any, at least. But would you be used to share the gospel with a Somali or a Sikh or an Afghan or an Iraqi or anyone else from a very different culture who is come here in the last years. Another thing, consider if God is calling you into full-time missionary work. It can happen, happen at different stages in your life. I don't want to put Jackie on the, on the spot here, but I know that Jackie and her husband went to New Guinea at a, after they had retired from normal work. They became missionaries later in life. Some people become missionaries right out of college, sometimes in middle life. So that's another thing to be praying about. Is God calling you into missions? How will you relate to those sitting in the same pew here at New Hope, but from a different ethnic or socioeconomic background? How can we as a congregation demonstrate harmony that comes from putting on love and setting our minds on things that are above? Well, looking back at Colossians 3, we see the Apostle Paul was working to fulfill the Great Commission by helping his colleague Epaphras teach disciples all that Jesus had commanded. Paul was a missionary who had covered a lot of territory across the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Epaphras worked just in his hometown. Throughout church history, our Lord calls his servants to witness in different ways, sometimes far away, sometimes right at home. Some are ordained, some are lay people. But it seems universally true that the greatest growth of a church happens when the average non-ordained church member, is actively and spontaneously spreading the good news about Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we realize that the love of Christ removes racial, ethnic, social prejudices. It brings harmony in place of conflict. Now, about the time that Pastor Eric asked if I could preach today, as he was planning out his schedule for September, and I decided to use this sermon, I providentially found a book published this year by two pastors at one church, two pastors at a church in Louisville, one black, one white. And the book is entitled, In Church as it is in Heaven, Cultivating a Multi-Ethnic Kingdom Culture. I found it to be a helpful, challenging book, convicting in a gentle way. The authors base their position and recommendations solidly on Scripture, with many references to church history. We will continue to work at carrying out the Great Commission with confidence that our King Jesus will always be with us, with that goal so beautifully portrayed in Revelations 7, 9, and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation! belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen.